Hello and welcome to the Personal Investor Podcast. I'm Ed Monk, today on the show. As it turns 40 years old, what role should the FTSE 100 play for investors? How has the FTSE changed over the years and what does that say about UK PLC? That's our focus today, as well as some chat about a jump in the price of gold. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. In January 1984, the FTSE 100 index was born, making it, I suppose, a millennial. And like its human millennial counterparts, the FTSE is fast approaching middle age with a few questions about where it goes from here and what the future holds. How should UK investors view their home market right now? What role does and should it play in portfolios? And what does the changing makeup of the FTSE 100 say about Britain? To answer that and to talk over the other big news in markets this week, I'm joined by someone who has had a front row seat for most of the life of the FTSE, and that, of course, is Tom Stevenson, Investment Director here at Fidelity. Tom, welcome along. Um, we are slightly premature here, given that the FTSE won't turn 40 until, I think, the 3rd of January next year. Um, but it's going to be a noteworthy moment, isn't it? Um, and a chance, I guess, to reflect on the role that blue chip, U, the blue chip UK index, which, of course, is what the FTSE 100 is, uh, what role it plays these days. Why don't we start with the basics? What is the FTSE? Um, there were indices, of course, before it, and other indices covering the UK market now exist as well. But what does the FTSE 100 specifically do for an investor? Yeah, so the FTSE 100 is uh, is an index which is composed of the essentially the 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 100 largest publicly quoted companies uh, in in the country. It it was it was launched as you say. Uh, at the beginning of 1984, so uh, almost 40 years ago, uh, and it replaced uh, a, a different type of index called the FT30, uh, which a bit like uh, in America, the, uh, the distinction between the Dow Jones Industrials Index uh, and the S&P 500 Index, which has come to replace uh, the, the the Dow Jones as, as being the main benchmark. The FTSE 100 has come to replace the, the FT30. And just as in America, um, the Dow Jones uh, is a price-based uh, index. The S&P 500 is a is a market capitalization-based uh, index. So uh, it's it's a simpler way of uh, measuring the market, uh, and it's being replicated in this country with the FTSE 100, which is a capitalization-based index. And, and you say measuring the market, and I guess that's the core role, isn't it, of any kind of index? It gives you a way of. Um a snapshot of the market and and you can measure its movements and that'll give you a broad direction of the market and of course it has a um, a practical use doesn't it but as a as a benchmark and something to peg other investments to i mean the obvious clear example of that is a is a passive tracking funds um needs an index to track doesn't it yeah i mean that that's exactly right i mean we uh, it, it has those two two functions i mean you know at the end of every news bulletin you know we're told what the FTSE 100 uh, has done that day. And so it it becomes a kind of barometer of the health of the stock market. uh, And in some eyes, a a sort of barometer of the health of the uh, economy, although maybe we'll come to that. It's not Mm -hmm. not a particularly good gauge of the uh, of the UK economy. Uh, But it also has a a practical investment uh, purpose, uh, which is to to act as the underpinning of um, of passive investment. So if you yeah. bought an ETF or a tracker fund uh, following the, the, the FTSE 100, then uh, that's what it would be based on. Yeah, and you mentioned market capitalization. Just to briefly dwell on that for a moment, you gather up the 100 biggest companies by their market capitalization, i.e. Their, their size effectively as valued by the 
by the stock market. Um, and then the index orders those in sort of that size order, if you can put it mm-hmm. that way. Um, and so if a company takes up 5% of the index, uh, someone buying an index linked or index tracking fund is going to get 5% of the money in that company. Yeah. And the reason why it's worth mentioning um, is that what, what it, what it tends to do is it, 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 it weights the index according to the most important or the biggest companies within, yeah. within that uh, index. Um, and, and that's, it's not so, it is not so noticeable in the UK actually, but we, we've talked a lot recently about the effect of the, of the biggest companies in the S and P 500 yeah. having a very big impact on the, on the market there. You do get a similar impact here. I can remember 20 odd years ago uh, during the, the technology bubble at the end of the 1990s, um, the, the, the FTSE 100 was, was very dominated by um, some big telecoms and technology companies, companies like Vodafone, for example. So at the time, if you were investing in a FTSE 100 tracker, you were very heavily exposed to those um, yeah. technology and telecoms uh, stocks. Um, so, and, and I think a lot of people probably don't realise that. They just think, oh, I'm getting an exposure to well, the market generally. But you are, that, you are actually getting quite a big sector exposure as well. It's interesting. I mean, now we come to talk about it and think about it. You know, the, the idea of, well, an investment that tracks a market, a market capitalisation index and the, and the market capitalisation index itself, it, the, the presupposition is that it makes sense to invest more of your money in a, in a bigger company. There actually is wisdom that would challenge that, isn't there? And so mm. there's, that's, you're not capturing the, the growthiest bits of the market, say. But, but inherent in that, uh, in that sort of idea is that uh, if you invest in the bigger companies, maybe there's more stability in those companies. Um, they're not about to disappear overnight. You reduce risk. That that's the logic of buying the index, isn't it? And having an index, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. But but it is a it is a complex uh, area, and and it is actually you know a bit of an argument against passive funds, actually, because essentially what 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 you're doing by investing in a market capitalization based index is you are putting your money to work in companies which have already grown. They've already right. become big. Yes. And, and there is an argument that actually you, you want to do the reverse. You want to buy the small companies that are growing or the out-of-favour companies which temporarily have become cheaper and, yeah. uh, and smaller. But maybe that's a complexity well, which yeah, we don't we, want to get into. We're not but, here to talk about the, yeah. uh, the benefits or not of index investing. We are <laughs> here to talk about the FTSE 100 specifically. Um, and you have been, Tom, a FTSE watcher. For most of your professional life, I think you would confess to that. Yep. Um, and uh, you've been drawing on that no- on that knowledge this week and in writing about the index as it turns 40. What did you glean looking back to those early, early days and the inception of the FTSE? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't quite there at the beginning um, uh, because in 1984, I was, I was still at university, but I, I, I started work in the city, started writing about investments in 1989. So the FTSE was only five years old mm. at that point, and of course it's now 40. So I have seen, I have witnessed m- most of its life. Um, as you say, I've been writing about it this week, and I and I thought it would be quite fun to just take the initial 100 constituents and compare them with with the 100 constituents now, and just yeah. have a look at the basic shape of the of of the FTSE 100. And I mean, of course, one of the first things that jumps out at you is just how many of the names in that original list um, just don't exist anymore. I sure. mean, not not just <laughs> they're not in the FTSE 100, but they don't exist as yeah. as companies. And it, it, it's, you know, it's quite a sort of roll call of, um, of sort of 
you know, largely forgotten names, which actually used to be a big part of the, the, the national conversation. So some that I just plucked out, Hawker Sidley, um, Trafalgar House, Thorny MI, Roundtree Macintosh. Um, Can I take a guess at what some of these companies did? Yeah, go on. So Roundtree, was that, is that the suites? Is yep. that related to the suites? Yeah, absolutely. EMI, is that uh, music publishing or something? Or, yes, or, and electricals. Uh, electricals, okay. Yeah. I just remember it as a, as a record label, I suppose. Yes, I re- well, and they probably made record players as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, Thorn, I've no idea. I don't, I don't know what that was at all. Uh, well, Thorn EMI was... Uh, oh, so Thorn. That was one company. That yeah. was one company. Yeah. Um, and Sidley. Um, uh, aerospace engineering. Okay, no. Yeah, no Trafalgar clue. House was a big conglomerate property property company and right. um, uh, transport and logistics. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So um, that makes my point, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you're obviously you're a young man, uh, Ed. <laughs> obviously, but I didn't realise you were that young. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I read your piece this week, and um, I think Tarmac was yes. in there, which is also sort of, don't even think of that as a company. It's no, just it's, it's, it's something on the road. Thing. Yeah. Um, Hanson, yeah. Um, Allied Lions. Uh, if, sugar? If you were really old, Is you'd remember Lions uh, Corner Shops, Lions Tea Shops. Right. Um, Is that tea? So Allied Lions was a, was a, was a food manufacturing right. company. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Okay. And well, and it, tells, it tells several stories, I suppose. One of them is about globalization, isn't it? Because there are a lot of industries there that probably just simply aren't done in this country anymore because globalized supply chains mean that we get them elsewhere where probably manufacturing and labour and all the rest of it is cheaper. Yes, and I suppose a lot of those names are actually quite sort of UK-specific names. So mm. I think it's probably fair to say that um, in its early days, the, the FTSE 100 was more of a reflection of the UK uh, economy than it is now, when you know the majority of companies in the FTSE 100 are really international, yeah, uh, international yeah, yeah. businesses. Those are the names that are no longer there. But plenty of names that actually still are there or, or sort of, you know, the uh, uh, antecedents or whatever are, are still around now. So Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and I think actually that was probably the surprise um, for me, actually, was I, I sort of went into this exercise thinking, oh, I'm going to come across, you know, lots of companies that don't exist anymore. Mm. Uh, and I did. I found a few. Um, but I was also quite surprised at just how many are still around. Um, and indeed, some of the sectors... Um, are largely unchanged. I looked at the banking sector, uh, for example, and Barclays, Lloyd's, Standard Chartered, NatWest, they were all on the list in 1984 and they're still there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was Midland Bank, which of course is, was taken over by HSBC, but it's still there in, in, in that, that form. The only newcomer actually to the list is um, Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS, which mm-hmm. wasn't there and, 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 and now is, but more or less unchanged, which I suppose says something about the stability of the, of the banking sector within, within the UK. Probably mm. that's the most stable um, sector that I came across. But I also found that there were that um, then and now the financial sector was very big. It was a big part of the FTSE 100, but it looked very different. So back in the early 1980s, it was largely about insurance. There were a lot of insurance. Yeah. Again, names which have disappeared, Commercial Union, Eagle Star, General Accident, Sun Alliance, Guardian Royal Exchange. I mean, these are names which would be familiar to older older yeah. listeners. Um, but now if you look at the, the, the financial sector, still big, still important, but um, it's got fund managers, Schroders, M&G, 
Um, yes. It's got uh, wealth advisors and platforms, St. James's Place, um, Hargreaves Lansdowne are there, and even the London Stock Exchange. I mean, the, the exchange yeah. on which all of these companies are actually traded is itself a FTSE 100 company. So, so there's, a, there's a sort of family resemblance between... 1984 FTSE and 2023 FTSE um, and, and, and thinking about it there's there is as you say quite a lot that is actually still similar if you think about the big sectors oil pharmaceuticals builders banks these are still the, the cornerstones of the the UK um, index and and it, you can't help but think and this conversation it's about the FTSE 100 but inevitably it's also about the S and P five hundred, S and P five hundred in the US market, and how because, they differ, yeah, yeah, and how they differ. Because if you if you were to you know run a similar exercise for the US, I've a sense that you you I'm sure you would see some of that kind of those links to the past, but you would see an entirely different um, new sectors entirely have, have popped up, including right the, the top of the index, the leadership of the index mm -hmm. is completely different, and that tells a story. Yes, indeed. I mean those you know those. Um, magnificent seven that we talk about those big companies um largely they didn't exist um yeah. uh in 1984 mm -hmm. um uh well apple did of course um uh yes. but uh, alphabet no uh, nvidia well they didn't exist really 20 years ago no. in, in in the sort of form that we we have them today no absolutely and i think that's the that, that's the key difference between the FTSE 100 and the S&P 500 is that um the S&P 500 is a is a representation of the dynamism of the US economy and its and its and its ability to renew itself um the FTSE 100 by contrast feels quite static i mean you know the the, the yeah. broad areas financials pharmaceuticals oil and gas they're all businesses that were around 40 years ago and were big and important parts of the economy then just as they are now but they're not new and they're not much bigger than they were then. Yeah, and look, this isn't a conversation about tech, but it, you know, we're, we're touching upon it. It sort of reminds you that though those big tech companies, it's not like they've invented completely new industries. They have in part, in some, some things are genuinely new. It's simply that they, they are very often the facilitators of other industries and other businesses, mm. aren't they? They, might, they control often the access to market. They often control the logistics um, or, or, or just the the efficiencies of 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 the practicalities of of working involve using the services and the goods of these tech we call them mm. tech companies, but that's mm. they are that they the their platforms their kind of networks they are facilitating companies, um, and for whatever reason I'm sure there'll be books and theses you know written about it. America has managed to capture and harness and develop that and the UK and other markets but we're in the UK the UK has not managed to do that yes and it's interesting I mean the way you describe those companies uh, there that you know that it's not just about being new and novel and high growth and innovative I mean they've actually become the new defensives yeah. um the new sort of the staples of the stock market yeah in a way that um you know maybe these companies that we were talking about the the, the pharmaceuticals and the oil and gas they were the staples 40 years ago but and they're and they're now a bit sort of stayed if you like uh yeah so it, it's just it's just a different cut of the the economy but you can see why the u.s market is more highly valued 
than yeah. the UK market and and why it has performed much better over the years because it's captured that growth and that that development in a way I think that the FTSE 100 hasn't. Well, I was going to move on to my next question and, and, and ask, you know, how all that, that makeup and that changing constitution of the index translates into the returns and the types of returns you get from one index and another. Um, you know, how much has the FTSE 100 returned how much has it grown because they're not exactly the same question mm. um and how have those returns come what's made up those returns yes well i mean uh you, you draw that distinction between growth and, and returns because in growth terms the FTSE 100 has really um well in the first 15 years i would say yeah. from 1984 up until the top of the dot-com bubble um the FTSE 100 performed extremely well i mean it, because it was launched at a thousand, and it peaked at just under seven thousand fifteen years mm -hmm. later. So actually, the first uh, few years of its life were really very rewarding. It's broadly speaking gone sideways since then in in capital terms. But actually, the FTSE one hundred has returned quite a lot to shareholders over the years because it has because it's quite a high yielding. Um, index much higher yielding actually than the US market. So in total return terms, um, the FTSE 100 has not been a bad investment um, over, still a gap over the years. But there is still, but there is yeah. still a very significant gap because over the last twenty years, the growth in the S and P 500 has been spectacularly better than the FTSE 100. And, and that actually is to do with those tech companies, isn't it? Basically, it's to do with almost them exclusively, yeah, and, and and the very very encouraging environment that we've had for monetary policy for companies like that. Yeah, basically. yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, given all of this, Tom, um, do you think the FTSE one hundred at forty now needs uh, a reappraisal in terms of its role um, in portfolios for investors? What should the allocation be to the home market, and what should investors expect to get back when they put their money into the biggest UK companies? Well, I think what the, the important thing is to understand what you're investing in, because the FTSE 100 is not, you know, a bad index, it, but it's different from mm -hmm. from a growth focused index like the like the S&P 500. What you're getting is, you know, some quite stable companies often paying a, a high uh, and sustainable income um, uh, in in areas of the world economy, which are not going to disappear, we're you know we're always going to have banks. You mm. know, for many years to come, we're going to have a need for for oil and gas. Pharmaceuticals is is both defensive and and, mm. and growth. So it's a solid um, index. It's a very international index. So you're buying global um, earnings rather than you shouldn't think of it as a reflection of the UK um, economy uh, in particular. But you know, as a solid core investment in your portfolio generating a good income it still has attractions but what you're not going to get access to uh, exposure to is that sort of high growth that innovation that that you will get from a u.s index and, and, and often when investors think about diversification globally regionally you're you're we often talk about it and think about it in terms of well you don't want to be exposed too much to the regional risks of, of one market or the country specific risks of one market but actually just as important if not more important are the things you're talking about there it's actually the types of companies that are in that it doesn't really matter where they are it's it's that you're getting lots of these uh, in the uk's context uh, 
value companies, very established, international, all those characteristics that you talk about. That's actually how you should be thinking about your diversification, isn't it? It's not simply mm. saying, well, you know, the, the UK may not grow as quickly as America, so I'm going to, you know, allocate according to that. It's, it's actually understanding underneath the companies in those, in, in, in those markets. I think that's right, yeah. I mean, it, it, the geographical element of the diversification is almost a byproduct, really. It's, it's, it's just an indicator. What's important is, is the exposures that you're getting to different investment styles and uh, different sectors and different growth pictures, really. But it's the fact that one is you know, in America and one's in Asia and one's in Europe is kind of irrelevant. Okay. Okay. Well, um, let's leave that part of our discussion there for now, Tom, um, and just round off some other news in markets before we go. Uh, gold has been on the move, hasn't it? So what's been happening there? Yeah, so uh, the gold price has been has been pretty strong recently, and indeed uh, this week um, the gold price hit a, a new six month high, um, and indeed at that new six month high, it is not very far away from its all time high. So it's now over two thousand uh, dollars an ounce, um, and th- this is slightly surprising actually, because the reason I say it's surprising is you would you would not expect gold to to perform. Um, particularly strongly in an environment of high interest rates. And the principal reason for that is that, as we know, gold doesn't pay an income. So when uh, it's in competition with other assets which do offer investors a high uh, income, then you would normally expect it to struggle. It's Mm. done the reverse. And I think that the reason it's done the reverse is because another characteristic of gold is that it is viewed as a safe haven asset at times of mm-hmm. uncertainty whether that's geopolitical or financial uncertainty and of course at the moment we have we have both um uh, both of those uh, um types of types of uncertainty so and that has proved to be more important for the price of gold than its lack of income at the moment uh, although uh, yeah i suppose it's odd that the gold is near an all-time high when interest rates are this high but the fact that it's risen recently isn't that much of a surprise when you consider that expectations around interest rates have come in and they slightly. Yes, and I think that is a that has proved to be a positive for it for for for, for the price of gold because as interest rates fall, then relatively speaking, gold becomes more attractive, or rather, the opportunity cost of holding gold becomes less. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the margin, people are more interested in in holding it. Um, another key factor with the gold price is the level of the dollar because gold is priced in dollars. So if the dollar is weakening... Um, Which then, it will if inflation and rate expectations are lower. Yes. If, if the expectation is that interest rates in the US are going to start falling, um, then that's going to affect the, the, the relative uh, exchange rate uh, of the dollar. A falling dollar helps the gold price because it makes gold cheaper for buyers in the rest of the world using mm-hmm. other currencies. So um, so there are a few tailwinds um, for, for gold at the moment. And that's why we've seen uh, that's why we've seen the gold push up towards a new all time high. Is this not another example, Tom, of, a, of an asset which it has the potential to gain now as interest rates come back to more normal levels as you know we, we will see where interest rates settle but it does look as though they may have peaked and they're going to come back down because you've got you've got shares will benefit from that potentially mm. bonds will definitely benefit from that gold apparently can benefit from that as well now 
there's a flip side to falling inflation expectations and falling rates, which is growth and general economic conditions. But there is a scenario where a lot of these things can rise sort of in harness together. They can, and it and it 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 partly depends on the reason why interest rates are, are coming down, and it depends on the degree of um, the slowdown in the economy, which is driving that for, that fall in interest rates and fall in in inflation. The sort of holy grail, the you know what what investors the Goldilocks the Goldilocks scenario is this soft landing whereby. Mm-hmm we can get on top of inflation without forcing the economy into recession. And that is largely what um, financial markets are pricing at the moment, whether it's, as you say, stock markets or, or, or bond markets or indeed the, the, the gold market. They, they are looking towards this, um, as you say, Goldilocks scenario. Um, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty about, um, you know, which outcome we end up with. Um, and indeed, maybe we can talk about this in in, in future weeks. The um, our um, strategists here at Fidelity have looked at various scenarios: the so-called soft landing, a harder landing where mm. we, you know, we have a, a more serious uh, recession, um, uh, a mild recession, or even what's been termed no landing at all. In other words, things just keep on <laughs> going. Yes, um, and and we've assigned various. Um, probabilities to those but um the, the, i i would say that that soft landing which is what's being priced into the market at the moment is probably one of the least likely um outcomes actually and so uh, maybe it would be a good topic for us to return well to. yeah and but expectations have been confounded haven't they this year around around that question and i think probably a lot of the the doomsters and the gloomsters as boris johnson might say have been proved slightly wrong there right haven't they I think they certainly have. I mean, I think if you go back to the beginning of this year, I think everyone was expecting uh, economies to move quite quickly towards recession. Uh, the expectation was that that would be actually good news for the bond market because the expectation was that interest rates would come down by the middle of this year. Of course, they haven't. The, the, the opposite was true. The economy has been much more resilient than anyone expected. Um, interest rates have remained, uh, as inflation has, higher for longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we get to the end of a year and the beginning of a new and people start making their forecasts. And funnily enough, people are saying at the beginning of 2024, exactly what they were saying at the beginning <laughs> of 2023, like a stop clock, one day they might be right. Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, Tom, that is all the time we have for now. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Ed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. Investors should note that the views expressed may no longer be current and may have already been acted upon. This information is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to one of Fidelity's advisors or an authorised financial advisor of your choice. Overseas investments will be affected by movements in currency exchange rates and investments in emerging markets can be more volatile volatile than other more developed markets. Reference to the specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for the purposes of illustration only. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and all tax rules may change in the future. Withdrawals from a pension product may not be possible until you reach age 55, 57 from 2028. This podcast may not be reproduced or circulated without prior permission. No statements or representations made in this podcast 
podcast are legally binding on Fidelity or the recipient. This podcast is meant only for UK residents and does not constitute an offer or a solicitation in any jurisdiction in which it may be unlawful to make such an offer or solicitation.